Chapter Three, Part One of Moments with Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. From Roughing It, Starting West, eighteen seventy to seventy one. We were six days going from St. Louis to St. Joe, a trip that was so dull and sleepy and eventless that it has left no more impression on my memory than if its duration had been six minutes instead of that many days. No record is left in my mind now concerning it but a confused jumble of savage-looking snags, which we deliberately walked over with one wheel or the other, and of reefs which we butted and butted, and then retired from, and climbed over in some softer place, and of sandbars which we roosted on occasionally, and rested, and then got out our crutches and sparred over. In fact, the boat might almost as well have gone to St. Joe by land, for she was walking most of the time anyhow, climbing over reefs and clambering over snags patiently and laboriously all day long. The captain said she was a bully boat, and all she wanted was more sheer and a bigger wheel. I thought she wanted a pair of stilts, but I had the deep sagacity not to say so. GEORGE BEMIS AND THE ALLEN Mr. George Bemis was dismally formidable. George Bemis was our fellow-traveller. We had never seen him before. He wore in his belt an original old Allen revolver, such as irreverent people called a pepper-box. Simply drawing the trigger back, cocked and fired the pistol. As the trigger came back, the hammer would begin to rise, and the barrel turn over, and presently down would drop the hammer, and away would speed the ball. To aim along the turning barrel, and hit the thing aimed at, was a feat which was probably never done with an Allen in the world. But George's was a reliable weapon, nevertheless, because, as one of the stage drivers afterwards said, if she didn't get what she went after, she would fetch something else. And so she did. She went after a deuce of spades, nailed against a tree, once, and fetched a mule standing about thirty yards to the left of it. Bemis did not want the mule, but the owner came out with a double-barreled shotgun, and persuaded him to buy it anyhow. THE OVERLAND STAGE our coach was a great swinging and swaying stage, of the most sumptuous description, an imposing cradle on wheels. It was drawn by six handsome horses, and by the side of the driver sat the conductor, the legitimate captain of the craft, for it was his business to take charge and care of the mails, baggage, express matter, and passengers. We three were the only passengers this trip. We sat on the back seat, inside. About all the rest of the coach was full of mail-bags, for we had three days' delayed mails with us. Almost touching our knees, a perpendicular wall of mail-matter rose up to the roof. There was a great pile of it strapped on top of the stage, and both the fore and hind boots were full. We had twenty-seven hundred pounds of it aboard, the driver said, a little for Brigham and Carson and Frisco but the heft of it for the engines, which is powerful troublesome, thout they get plenty of truck to read. But as he just then got up a fearful convulsion of his countenance, which was suggestive of a wink being swallowed by an earthquake, 
we guessed that his remark was intended to be facetious and to mean that we would unload most of our mail matter somewhere on the plains and leave it to the indians or whosoever wanted it we changed horses every ten miles all day long and fairly flew over the hard level road we jumped out and stretched our legs every time the coach stopped and so the night found us still vivacious and unfatigued morning on the plains another night of alternate tranquillity and turmoil but morning came by and by it was another glad awakening to fresh breezes vast expanses of level greensward bright sunlight an impressive solitude utterly without visible human beings or human habitations and an atmosphere of such amazing magnifying properties that trees that seemed close at hand were more than three miles away we resumed undress uniform climbed atop of the flying coach dangled our legs over the side shouted occasionally at our frantic mules merely to see them lay their ears back and scamper faster tied our hats on to keep our hair from blowing away and levelled an outlook over the world-wide carpet about us for things new and strange to gaze at even at this day it thrills me through and through to think of the life the gladness and the wild sense of freedom that used to make the blood dance in my veins on those fine overland mornings the coyote the coyote is a long slim sick and sorry-looking skeleton with a grey wolf-skin stretched over it a tolerably bushy tail that forever sags down with a despairing expression of forsakenness and misery a furtive and evil eye and a long sharp face with slightly lifted lip and exposed teeth he has a general slinking expression all over the coyote is a living breathing allegory of want he is always hungry he is always poor out of luck and friendless the meanest creatures despise him and even the fleas would desert him for a velocipede he is so spiritless and cowardly that even while his exposed teeth are pretending a threat the rest of his face is apologizing for it and he is so homely so scrawny and ribby and coarse-haired and pitiful when he sees you he lifts his lip and lets a flash of his teeth out and then turns a little out of the course he was pursuing depresses his head a bit and strikes a long soft-footed trot through the sagebrush glancing over his shoulder at you from time to time till he is about out of easy pistol range and then he stops and takes a deliberate survey of you he will trot fifty yards and stop again another fifty and stop again and finally the grey of his gliding body blends with the grey of the sagebrush and he disappears all this is when you make no demonstration against him but if you do he develops a livelier interest in his journey and instantly electrifies his heels and puts such a deal of real estate between himself and your weapon that by the time you have raised the hammer you see that you need a mini rifle and by the time you have got him in line you need a rifled cannon and by the time you have drawn a bead on him you see well enough that nothing but an unusually long-winded streak of lightning could reach him where he is now 
but if you start a swift-footed dog after him, you will enjoy it ever so much, especially if it is a dog that has a good opinion of himself, and has been brought up to think he knows something about speed. The coyote will go swinging gently off on that deceitful trot of his, and every little while he will smile a fraudful smile over his shoulder, that will fill that dog entirely full of encouragement and worldly ambition, and make him lay his head still lower to the ground, and stretch his neck further to the front, and pant more fiercely, and stick his tail out straighter behind, and move his furious legs with a yet wilder frenzy, and leave a broader and broader and higher and denser cloud of desert sand smoking behind, and marking his long wake across the level plain. And all this time the dog is only a short twenty feet behind the coyote, and to save the soul of him he cannot understand why it is that he cannot get perceptibly closer. And he begins to get aggravated, and it makes him madder and madder to see how gently the coyote glides along and never pants or sweats or ceases to smile and he grows still more and more incensed to see how shamefully he has been taken in by an entire stranger, and what an ignoble swindle that long, calm, soft-footed trot is, and next he notices that he is getting fagged, and that the coyote actually has to slacken speed a little to keep from running away from him, and then that town dog is mad in earnest, and he begins to strain and weep and swear, and paw the sand higher than ever, and reach for the coyote with concentrated and desperate energy. This spurt finds him six feet behind the gliding enemy, and two miles from his friends, and then, in the instant that a wild new hope is lighting up his face, the coyote turns and smiles blandly upon him once more, and with a something about it which seems to say, well, I shall have to tear myself away from you, bud. Business is business, and it will not do for me to be fooling along this way all day. And forthwith there is a rushing sound, and the sudden splitting of a long crack through the atmosphere, and behold, that dog is solitary and alone in the midst of a vast solitude. THE PONY RIDER in a little while all interest was taken up in stretching our necks and watching for the pony rider, the fleet messenger who sped across the continent from St. Joe to Sacramento, carrying letters nineteen hundred miles in eight days. Think of that for perishable horse and human flesh and blood to do. The pony rider was usually a little bit of a man, brimful of spirit and endurance. No matter what time of the day or night his watch came on, and no matter whether it was winter or summer, raining, snowing, hailing or sleeting, or whether his beat was a level straight road, or a crazy trail over mountain crags and precipices, or whether it led through peaceful regions that swarmed with hostile Indians, he must be always ready to leap into the saddle and be off like the wind. There was no idling time for a pony rider on duty. He rode fifty miles without stopping by daylight, moonlight, starlight, or through the blackness of darkness, just as it happened. He rode a splendid horse that was born for a racer, and fed and lodged like a gentleman. 
kept him at his utmost speed for ten miles, and then, as he came crashing up to the station, where stood two men holding fast a fresh, impatient steed, the transfer of rider and mail-bag was made in the twinkling of an eye, and away flew the eager pair, and were out of sight before the spectator could get hardly the ghost of a look. Both rider and horse went flying light. The rider's dress was thin, and fitted close. He wore a roundabout, and a skull-cap, and he tucked his pantaloons into his boot-tops like a race-rider. He carried no arms, he carried nothing that was not absolutely necessary, for even the postage on his literary freight was worth five dollars a letter. He got but little frivolous correspondence to carry, his bag had business letters in it mostly. His horse was stripped of all unnecessary weight, too. He wore a little wafer of a racing saddle, and no visible blanket. He wore light shoes, or none at all. The little flat mail-pockets, strapped under the rider's thighs, would each hold about the bulk of a child's primer. They held many and many an important business chapter and newspaper letter, but these were written on paper as airy and thin as gold leaf nearly, and thus bulk and weight were economized. The stagecoach travelled about a hundred to a hundred and twenty-five miles a day, twenty-four hours, the pony-rider about two hundred and fifty. There were about eighty pony-riders in the saddle all the time, day and night, stretching in a long, scattering procession, from Missouri to California, forty flying eastward and forty toward the west, and among them making four hundred gallant horses earn a stirring livelihood and see a deal of scenery every single day in the year. We had had a consuming desire, from the beginning, to see a pony-rider, but somehow or other all that passed us and all that met us managed to streak by in the night, and so we heard only a whiz and a hail, and the swift phantom of the desert was gone before we could get our heads out of the windows. But now we were expecting one along every moment, and would see him in broad daylight. Presently the driver exclaims, "'Here he comes!' Every neck is stretched further, and every eye strained wider. Away across the endless dead level of the prairie, a black speck appears against the sky, and it is plain that it moves. Well, I should think so. In a second or two it becomes a horse and rider, rising and falling, rising and falling, sweeping toward us nearer and nearer, growing more and more distinct, more and more sharply defined, nearer and still nearer, and the flutter of the hoofs comes faintly to the ear. Another instant, a whoop and a hurrah from our upper deck, a wave of the rider's hand, but no reply and a man and horse burst past our excited faces, and go winging away like a belated fragment of a storm. So sudden is it all, and so like a flash of unreal fancy, that but for the flake of white foam left quivering and perishing on a mail-sack after the vision had flashed by and disappeared, we might have doubted whether we had seen any actual horse and man at all, maybe. INDIAN COUNTRY we had now reached a hostile Indian country, and during the afternoon we passed La Perelle Station, and enjoyed great discomfort all the time we were in the neighbourhood. 
being aware that many of the trees we dashed by at arm's length concealed a lurking indian or two during the preceding night an ambushed savage had sent a bullet through the pony rider's jacket but he had ridden on just the same because pony riders were not allowed to stop and inquire into such things except when killed as long as they had life enough in them they had to stick to the horse and ride even if the indians had been waiting for them a week and were entirely out of patience about two hours and a half before we arrived at laparel station the keeper in charge of it had fired four times at an indian but he said with an injured air that the indian had skipped around so's to spile everything and ammunition's blamed scarce too the most natural inference conveyed by his manner of speaking was that in skipping around the indian had taken an unfair advantage we shut the blinds down very tightly that first night in the hostile indian country and lay on our arms we slept on them some but most of the time we only lay on them we did not talk much but kept quiet and listened it was an inky black night and occasionally rainy we were among woods and rocks hills and gorges so shut in in fact that when we peeped through a chink in a curtain we could discern nothing the driver and conductor on top were still too or only spoke at long intervals in low tones as is the way of men in the midst of invisible dangers we listened to raindrops pattering on the roof and the grinding of the wheels through the muddy gravel and the low wailing of the wind and all the time we had that absurd sense upon us inseparable from travel at night in a close-curtained vehicle the sense of remaining perfectly still in one place notwithstanding the jolting and swaying of the vehicle the trampling of the horses and the grinding of the wheels we listened a long time with intent faculties and bated breath every time one of us would relax and draw a long sigh of relief and start to say something a comrade would be sure to utter a sudden hark and instantly the experimenter was rigid and listening again at the summit of the rockies and now at last we were fairly in the renowned south pass and whirling gaily along high above the common world we were perched upon the extreme summit of the great range of the rocky mountains toward which we had been climbing patiently climbing ceaselessly climbing for days and nights together and about us was gathered a convention of nature's kings that stood ten twelve even thirteen thousand feet high grand old fellows who would have to stoop to see mount washington in the twilight we were in such an airy elevation above the creeping populations of the earth that now and then when the obstructing crags stood out of the way it seemed that we could look around and abroad and contemplate the whole great globe with its dissolving views of mountains seas and continents stretching away through the mystery of the summer haze incidents by the way at the green river station we had breakfast hot biscuits fresh antelope steaks and coffee the only decent meal we tasted between the united states and great salt lake city and the only one we were ever really thankful for 
think of the monotonous execrableness of the thirty that went before it to leave this one simple breakfast looming up in my memory like a shot tower after all these years have gone by at five p m we reached fort bridger one hundred and seventeen miles from the south pass and one thousand and twenty-five miles from st joseph fifty-two miles further on near the head of echo canyon we met sixty united states soldiers from camp floyd the day before they had fired upon three hundred or four hundred indians whom they supposed gathered together for no good purpose in the fight that had ensued four indians were captured and the main body chased four miles but nobody killed this looked like business we had a notion to get out and join the sixty soldiers but upon reflecting that there were four hundred of the indians we concluded to go on and join the indians mormon beauties our stay in salt lake city amounted to only two days and therefore we had no time to make the customary inquisition into the workings of polygamy and get up the usual statistics and deductions preparatory to calling the attention of the nation at large once more to the matter i had the will to do it with the gushing self-sufficiency of youth i was feverish to plunge in headlong and achieve a great reform here until i saw the mormon women then i was touched my heart was wiser than my head it warmed toward these poor ungainly and pathetically homely creatures and as i turned to hide the generous moisture in my eyes i said no the man that marries one of them has done an act of christian charity which entitles him to the kindly applause of mankind not harsh censure and the man that marries sixty of them has done a deed of open-handed generosity so sublime that the nations should stand uncovered in his presence and worship in silence end of chapter three part one